Welcome back to another episode of Reading for a Change, a podcast from Moody Publishers, where we take an inside look at the books transforming our lives and shaping the world. I'm your host, Drew Dick, and I am so excited uh, about my guest today because he is a buddy of mine. I've worked with him. Uh, His name is John Kessler. Uh, He's an award-winning author and the recently retired chair of the Pastoral Studies Department at Moody Bible Institute. He's also the author of numerous books, including The Radical Pursuit of Rest, uh, Folly, Grace, and Power. That's a second book, Folly, Grace, and Power, which is about preaching. And by the way, if you're a preacher, I mean, you know, listen to this podcast, but then after, go get this book, because honestly, it's just tremendous. Um, Other books that he's written include Practicing the Present, and his most recent book, which is hot off the press, I'm holding it right here. It's still warm. No, not really. But <laughs> it's that new. It just came out this month um, called Dangerous Virtues, How to Follow Jesus When Evil Masquerades as Good. John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Drew. It's great to be with you. Excited to talk to you. Only oh, wish I'm I could see you. Too. <laughs> uh, right. I know. Yeah. We're in this weird world where, you know, if, if it was... Uh, Pre or post COVID, uh, yeah. I might be out there as I am often, and we could have done it in person. But yeah. we'll, we'll have to settle for this. It's good to hear your voice. <laughs> Great to hear yours. Um, okay, so I want to talk about dangerous virtues. Uh, and but first, I feel like you know, full disclosure, I have to confess that I was one of the editors on this book, <laughs> so I'm a little right. biased. Uh, but it is. I was one of the ex- writers, so I was one of the writers. <laughs> <laughs> We're both invested, um, right. but it's an excellent book, and it's Thank so you. timely. And I love the title. And um, I wish I could say that uh, I came up with the title on your behalf, you know, because sometimes that's how it works. Like an author will will write a book, and then the publisher kind of goes, "Okay, well, you know, your title's okay, but." Uh, uh, thoughts I had while sitting on my couch maybe isn't the best title for readers, you know? And so we'll give feedback and come up with something different, but this title dangerous virtues, which I just love uh, John had from the beginning. So maybe no, I didn't see your, your misremembering. Oh man. My working title was deadly virtues. Oh, publishers softened it. Oh my goodness. And now I'm (laughs) conflicted because I don't know which is better. They're both pretty good. Uh, Well, you know, I think, I I think this is like, uh, I I, I could only guess that, you know, whoever does, I think there's like a big, you know, smoke filled room somewhere where a committee (laughs) decides these things and they maybe felt it was a little too, I don't know, harsh or negative. I actually think it's more accurate, but. <laughs> well, okay. Well, first of all, I can tell you at Moody Publishers, there are no smoke-filled rooms. No smoke-filled rooms. That's right. That's right. I used but, to work there. I, I concur. I agree with that. We don't want to start rumors. Um, no. But, uh, okay, I'd forgotten that. And you're right. Now that you say that, Deadly Virtues. And maybe, well, given the time that we're in, Deadly would have been a little uh, uh, yeah, that's true. less uh, well-received. So. Dangerous virtues it is. Let's start there, though, because uh, it, it's intriguing, but it might be confusing for people. So what the heck do you mean by dangerous virtues? Because it sounds a little bit like a contradiction in terms. Yeah. And this is where actually probably the title, as we now have it, is a better title because what we're talking about are, are values and practices 
that the ancients considered to be deadly sins, but that have been re- rehabilitated by our age and to such a degree that they are regarded as virtues, not sins, but virtues, good good things. Really, virtue is just an old word for what is good or what is excellent or you know, the, the thing that we aspire to. So what the, what the ancients used to call the seven deadly sins, what I'm arguing is in our culture are seven dangerous virtues that we aspire to that are part of the way we see the world and what, and the things that we do and are really actually destroying us. So, yeah. I, and I just, I remember seeing that concept and going, yes, it, I just, I realized right away that it was a very uh, incisive critique of what's happening in our cultural moment. And of course we don't call them uh, by their original names, these vices, but like you said, we have rehabilitated them. We put a positive spin on them. So I'm wondering, can you walk us through really quick, not getting, we'll, we'll get into a little more depth here when I ask about some of the specific vices turned virtues. Um, but I'm wondering if you can just walk us through that list of seven deadly sins and then what we call them sure. today. So the, the, they're in this, this order, uh, sort of an ascending order from lowest to the highest, which is kind of interesting too, when we see that the lowest one on the list of the ancients was lust, which we today sort of feel as the epitome. In fact, I got to tell you, in, in the, the conversations I've had with people about this book, they all, that's the one they get stuck on, never get off of it. Lust, which we have redefined as love. Gluttony, which we have redefined as satisfaction, greed, which we call prosperity, sloth, which we falsely uh, ascribe as leisure, wrath, or anger, which we today, I'm arguing, call justice, envy, which today we call envy. (laughs) We don't really see envy as a problem. And also with the the seventh one, which is uh, the ancients considered to be the the premier sin, pride, which we call pride because we don't have a problem with that either. Yeah, we're like, yeah, that's good. All yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Uh, one fascinating insight on, on the topic of gluttony, which is kind of a word we don't use very much, uh, certainly not a positive word, but you talked about how it's not just, you know, going to Cheesecake Factory and <laughs> going crazy, although that certainly qualifies, uh, speaking from experience. Um, but uh, you you used a word from C.S. Lewis called the gluttony of delicacy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I found that fascinating. Can you explain what that means? Well, for Lewis, it is this overly particular uh, approach to food. And he, he paints this picture of, you know, of a person who basically would say, you know, well, I, you know, I don't want to be a, a problem. I'll just have this. And then, you know, whatever it is they just want to have, of course, ends up being like a major problem because they're, we would call them uh, uh, inordinately picky eaters, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. but, but today I think, you know, today we are a culture that is obsessed with food which is really interesting, you know, or, or rather I should probably say we're obsessed with eating as a culture, which is really striking because we are for the most part a prosperous culture. 
I mean, you could see how a, a culture where we were, where we wor- had to worry about where our next meal came from, where food might be a primary concern. And in sure. fact, Jesus affirms that when he talks about it in the Sermon on the Mount. He recognizes that his audience is really wondering where its next meal is going to come from. But for us, food, eating and food, food is, first of all, it's a mode of entertainment. It is. Yes. It is something we're obsessed about because we are trying to control our health, you know, and I don't mean we're trying to be good stewards of it. I mean, we're trying to absolutely be in control of our health so that we can somehow make sure we don't die someday. It is, um, it is, um, eating for in our culture is a symbol of luxury. And so it's bound up with our sense of greed and our pride. And also it has become uh, politicized. In fact, I I would even say that some forms of eating have been sort of weaponized politically so that we, uh, uh, they become emblems that we use to view others with contempt. And uh, it's very Mm. different, say, from the ancient world, you know, where particular Paul and Paul's day, issues of eating were bound up with religion with legalism with the dietary code of the law of Moses but the principle is still the same when Paul says don't let anybody judge you in what you eat or drink and then at the same time he counsels a sensitivity that that we don't want to eat in a way that causes other people to violate their conscience it becomes an issue of conscience for him hmm yeah i know that that observation i think was so striking to me because you know, I'm out here in Portland, Oregon, uh, mm-hmm, <laughs> and mm-hmm. we just have so many people. And, and you know Portland well. Your son lives out here. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we have so many folks that are, I don't know what you'd call them, foodies, gourmands, right? Just kind of always on the hunt for the perfect uh, Thai food or this or right, that. And yeah. just, and not that there's anything wrong with that. Obviously, like appreciating great food and stuff like that. But it can it can get to a point where I totally see this, that it's the gluttony of delicacy where you you have really started to kind of worship your 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 particular tastes and and really elevate that to a weird level. Yeah, and I and I think it's the issue, you know, the mistake of gluttony is this error of thinking that appetite is the gateway to satisfaction. And you mm. see that in all the dangerous virtues that are related to hunger or desire, you know, you see that with greed, you even you see that with pride that and of course, the terrible irony, particularly with hunger, is that hunger, by its very nature, can't be satisfied. If you eat something now, a few hours from now, you're just going to get hungry again. Ecclesiastes six seven says, "Everyone's toil is for their mouth, yet their appetite is never satisfied." So, if I'm looking for that which is perishable to give me a level of well-being that can only come from the imperishable, I'm I'm setting myself up for disaster. And of course, the Bible has a name for that. It's called idolatry. <laughs> mm, <laughs> you know, That's so, good. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you find that ultimate meal or that ultimate experience, right? You're just going to be hungry for more if you're looking for it in the wrong and, place. And that's the aim. See, these things, all of these hungers are really signposts which point to a hunger that can't be filled by any earthly means, any human means. Then in in our age that's what we're in denial of is that we do not we do not want to have any kind of emptiness 
uh, we, we don't want to deal with that. We don't recognize that that is intended to direct us toward God and, mm, and the satisfaction yeah. that he alone can provide. Right. And, and these, the continual pursuit of these um, things that don't ultimately satisfy can anesthetize us from that, that need, that spiritual need that we have. Um, okay, this, this quote I'm going to read from the book really jumped out at me. It's particularly timely as well. You write that our modern view of justice is sharply discordant from the one described in scripture. Most of the time, what we call justice is only sentimentality expressed in the form of anger. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah. Can you, can you talk a little bit about how that, how you see that playing out in our culture? Well, I think you see it playing out on television every day, you know, and in fact, I, I think what's one of the things that's happened in Port, Portland's experience to me is emblematic of it. So, you know, here you have the, here you have these vivid scenes of, of people, angry people, uh, expressing their wrath on inanimate objects. Hmm. You know, they're, they're, I saw a vivid picture of one demonstrator just, you know, pounding on one of the federal buildings downtown in Portland. Now, what they're doing in their mind, they are working for justice. But in reality, all they're really doing is expressing their anger. Mm -hmm. They're not, they're not doing anything that contributes to a more just society. And so this was a, um, I read an article by Jeremy Begbie. It was a, it was an essay by Jeremy Begbie on sentimentality in the arts. And he identified three traits of sentimentality. And it was, it struck me, it struck me that it was so applicable, not just to the notion of justice, but to our whole church culture today. And he says, sentimentality has, first of all, it's superficial. That is, it oversimplifies problems in a way that evades or trivializes the difficulty. Or as he puts it, it, it ends up trivializing evil, actually. Mm. The second trait of sentimentality is that it's emotionally self-indulgent. So that one of the ways that I know that I'm sentimental is that this, this overwhelming sense of emotion that I'm experiencing or expressing is primarily being expressed for the pleasure of exercising the emotion. That, right. So that so that I think that's where it, that's where it impinges on what we are calling justice today that it's really outrage exercised for our own, for its own pleasure. There this is anger that's expressed and and you know in terms of the situation the anger might be legitimate. I'm not I'm not saying that there's no place for people to be angry. But that's all, that's all that sentimentalized outrage has to bring to the table. It just brings anger to the table. It doesn't bring anything that contributes to changing the dynamics that actually work for justice. And then the third trait then is of, of sentimentalism is that it's not actionable. The only real mm. contribution of those who engage in sentimentalized outrage is anger. So... Um, so that's what yeah. I'm saying, I, you know, and I, and I, and I really do, I'm deeply concerned that the way that the church today has so uh, accepted 
what is honestly a secularized view of justice so that it's it's a notion of justice that number 1 has no standard that includes god that is we're, we're drawing our notion of justice from from the secular realm hmm. instead mm-hmm. of from the biblical framework where god is the only one who is just and justice has to do with conformity to a standard that he establishes in the word and that we're using the language in a very uh, uh, vague way so that you don't even know, you know, it's, it sounds cool to talk about. We'll quote Micah 6, 8, and then we'll talk about justice. And then we all sort of nod our heads like, yeah, we all know. Yeah, we all know what that is. When in fact, we don't. You, you, you press <laughs> right. two people to define what they mean by it. You may very well come up with conflicting definitions of what they're talking about. So, um, you know, and of course, then we're angry about, we're fighting each other about it. And it's become in, in, the, in, in evangelicalism, it's become this, you know, profound dividing line. I mean, if you just, just go through your Facebook feed oh, and you, man. Can, yeah. you can see how it's pushing, it's polarizing the church by this, this conflicting definition of whatever we mean by definition, uh, by justice, rather. Yeah, no, you're so right. And and when I read that, I immediately thought of social media. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think there's an element to it that's cathartic. You think, okay, I'm mad about something or I see something right. is unjust. I can go on social media and be on the right side of whatever issue. Right, exactly. And then I've sort of done my part uh, when, of course, you haven't really maybe uh, you know, you persuaded one person. It, probably it really, not. <laughs> it really, it really is the epitome of what James is talking about when he talk when he says talks about the man who says, "Be warmed and filled," and then just goes their way. And I, oh, I think today, right. much of what is uh, framed as a passion for justice is really just a, a loud version of you know, be warmed and filled. And it's a demand that somebody else needs to do something. We don't even really know what it is they're supposed to do, but they're supposed to do it. And having, having declared that and, and in its worst form, uh, you know, burnt something down in the process, you know, then I feel like, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm a justice warrior. So, yeah. No, huge problem uh, that we're facing right now. And it isn't just an out there problem. You're, you're absolutely correct. This is a, a, a very acrimonious uh, debate that's playing out inside the church. So this is tough because I know it's not a short answer to go, okay, well, what's the solution? But biblically, is it, is it to kind of reverse those, those uh, features of sentimentality? You know, should it just be actionable and, and deep? What's, what's the answer? What's yeah, the corrective? so I think... And honestly, I, I don't think it's rocket science. You know, I would say it is, first of all, to be suspicious of the sentimentalized culture that we find ourselves in. And then if, if we're talking specifically about justice, you know, what are we going to do with that? I think, it, obviously, it starts with establishing a biblical framework for understanding what justice is. And the, the biblical notion of justice is that it can, it is what is right. It's as simple as that. What does it mean to be just? It simply means to do the right thing. And, uh, you know, I, th- I think that for most of us, in order for it to be actionable, 
it has to be individualized. So that's because that's another trait of the way we're talking about justice. We are so caught up in talking about large systemic notions of justice. Those are things that I have no control over. You know, honestly, right. in most most of those situations, they're they're large. Those are large ecosystems that I can't social ecosystems that I can't fundamentally change. What I can do is act justly as an individual. So, and Jesus defines it very in a very narrow framework. How how do you think about your neighbor? How do you treat your neighbor? Uh, you know, what kind of an employee are you? What is it like for you to live in your community? Um, so that every every moment of the day, I have really ordinary, concrete situations in front of me where I have the opportunity to to think, to speak, to act in a way that conforms with what God says is good and has explicitly told me what that looks like in the scriptures. And so, you know, I honestly think that if we really want to be justice warriors, that's the place to start. And I'm not saying there aren't, you know, larger issues, you know, November, go and vote, go ahead and vote, you know, and vote your conscience. But don't beat up your neighbor for for voting differently than you do because that's the way the system works. You see you see what I'm saying there's a yeah. uh, there's a there's a almost a, I I honestly think that in today's in today's idea justice has been subverted by a mob culture. So mm. Exodus 23:2 warns those who judge not to pervert justice by siding with the crowd. And I think today right. that's the, you know, the mob mentality is so much a part of social media. It's the way we think about, you know, uh, uh, making decisions. If we get a big enough group who can put enough pressure, the, the whole notion of personal individual responsibility, I think, is being pushed off to the margin. And that really is how it's on that level of human beings living out the reality of what the Bible calls righteousness in ordinary circumstances, that's what creates a just society. I'm so glad that you connected this topic of justice to the nature of God, to, to who God is, because if we lose that, I feel like uh, we're, we're sort of coming at it willy-nilly. I see these folks that are very passionate for some idea of justice uh, but I know that they're not connected to the Christian tradition and that's fine, but it's, I just kind of wonder, okay, how are you so angry and so certain of your positions if ultimately there's no God, no afterlife, no transcendent truth, <laughs> you know, uh, well, to that what are you yeah, appealing? It doesn't surprise yeah. me that they feel strongly or that they're, you know, even that they feel a sense of anger. That isn't at all troubling to me because I think that's, that's normal for any kind of conviction. I think for Christians, the the question has got. But the, for Christians, it has to go beyond conviction. It has mm. to go beyond the sense of, well, I feel strongly about this. It, it really does for Christians. It has to start with the notion of uh, a, a standard of 
what is called right that God defines. And then, um, you know, when once then once we move into the the marketplace of ideas, then clearly we're we're going to be arguing on a very different ground than to just say, you know, to to assume that the notion of justice is universal and everybody knows what it looks like and everybody agrees. I, th- I mean, that's a, I think that's mm. one of the major problems with the conversation about it in the church today is we, uh, w- those who are talking the most about it are the least definitive about it. And they're talking about it as if they assumed we all mean the same thing. When in right. fact, we really don't. So that's why it it really, I think, it really does end up being a secularized uh, vision of justice that has been has been dressed up in Sunday clothes and brought to church, then rather than the other way around, rather than a notion of right that grows out of a thoughtful reflection on what Scripture says about where we stand with God and how we relate to our neighbor, and then is worked out in the context of society, uh, I think we've reversed it. Yes. That's well, that really sounds well really said. abstract. I don't know what no. I just said. but <laughs> No, no, no. I, I, I think that's exactly right. Um, and I didn't mean to camp so long on the justice piece, but I think just because of where we are well, right now age, yeah. as yeah. a culture, uh, I mean, this is playing out on social media, literally in the streets as well. Uh, we've got an election coming, as you mentioned, uh, yeah. and it's it's going to get worse. I'm afraid before it gets better. So, well, and it's it's really- it's nice to be talking about something other than sex because everybody else I talk to gets stuck on <laughs> lust. So, I didn't even have a question about that. I didn't. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, okay. <laughs> well, um, the next thing I had, wanted to ask about was sloth because yeah. I think a lot of people assume, well, sloth isn't a problem now. We work like crazy. We're working more than ever. You've seen the studies about how we're. Uh, so how do you respond to that? Well, that's, it is really true that, that we are a very busy culture. The mistake in our thinking there is that busyness is not a reflection of sloth when actually it often is. And, uh, you have a example of that in the Old Testament when God's people are poised to move into the land of promise, the spies come back. And and God's people balk, you know, they're they're afraid to go in, and so so God says to them, "Okay, we're going to take another. You're going to spend some time in the wilderness before you go in." And they immediately say, "Oh no 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 no, we're going to you know, we're going to go in." Both both instances where they're not willing to do what they should do, and then where they try to, in their own energy, do what only God can do. Only God really can be the one who brings them into the land. Both of those are actually evidences of the way sloth works. Sometimes sloth manifests itself in what we would typically call laziness, or it, it leeches our interest away from things that ought to concern us. And at other times, it, it's a way that we squander time or an energy on meaningless trifles at the expense of an obligation. In fact, if you want to know what busy sloth looks like, just log into Facebook you know, or, <laughs> right. or Twitter. You know, I spend, <laughs> I spend a lot of nights reading your Twitter feed, Drew. 
When I was going to say, why did you have to bring up Twitter? You know, yeah. that's my vice. <laughs> when, when really, you know, but seriously, I actually, I do think seriously that one of the many negative side effects of the culture of social media is that it's, it really does uh, aggravate our tendency towards sloth. And really what sloth is, it's false rest. It is, oh, that's good. It, it is seeking rest again, ju- just like, just like, you know, uh, uh, um, just like gluttony is seeking to get satisfaction from food that food can't provide. Sloth is looking for rest in the wrong place. And ultimately, of course, it's Jesus who Jesus who offers us rest in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus says, which isn't doesn't mean that he like takes us off to you know a little uh, garden somewhere and we don't do anything. Because at the very next statement he makes is to take the yoke, take my yoke upon you, and learn from me. That that implies rest that is experienced within the framework of service, service to Christ. Actually, I don't know if it's legit since this is a Moody Publishers blog, but I wrote another, I wrote a book about this called The Radical Pursuit of Rest, where it explores that in in, uh, detail. So, Yes, that's a great book. And I love that, that way you put it, that sloth is false rest. And our world is full of ways to find uh, false rest, including, of course, things like social media. Uh, also, let me, add one, yeah. let me add one other thing, too, that the, another way that it manifests itself is in what might be described as a false simplicity. That mm. is, um, y- you see this, I think, in uh, ill-conceived attempts to shorten the process. You know, you, you see this in the life of the church. I think you see this in business where we don't want to go through, you know, all of the effort it would take to do the job right so we're looking we're looking for a fast way to to get through it and so we end up cutting corners or we want to do uh everything with the minimum required effort that is a reflection of sloth and absolutely you you often i think you do you often see it in leadership you see it i think you see it in the workplace and if you're a victim of it, you know, if you are subjected to it, uh, it's it's a terrible environment to be in. It's, it's yeah. really difficult when you're being led by a slothful person. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's I can totally see that. You don't want to be on the receiving end of that for sure. Um, or, the le- or the leading end of it. <laughs> right, right. It might not feel as bad in, in the short term, but yeah, ultimately. Um so you've had a great career training ministers, writing all these books. I'm assuming at this point, most of the vices that we're talking about are safely in your rear view mirror. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. That's joking, of course. You're, you're um, a funny guy. <laughs> I mean, uh, you should have just you gone know, that was, that, No, I mean, that's the, you know, <laughs> when I started re- I started this out of a series of blog posts, you know, because I, I I was just starting to uh, do my blog, and I thought, well, what can I write about? And I thought, well, seven deadly sins. Ah, there's seven things I could write about. <laughs> and then, and then, as I started to, you know, reflect more deeply about it, I 
realized how really uh, complex and uh, you know just the, the 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 difficulty of sin, and of course seeing it in my own life. And every one of these, every one of these things, I could see in my own soul. And I also saw how each one sort of blends into the other, you know, that's mm. kind of like, that has this expansive quality to it. So that I, by the time you're done reflecting on the nature of sin, you know, you, you end up where Paul is in Romans 7, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver right. me from this body of death? And of course, the good news is that this is what salvation is all about, that that's, that's why when you read the book, it's not just about like here is a list of seven kinds of sin. It's really about the way of life, mm-hmm. you know, that the, the answer to sin, that each of these problems points me in the direction of the redemption that Christ provides. Amen. I love that. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned that too, because this isn't a book where it's just like, oh, you're going to learn about these these sins and how how we've uh, yeah rehabilitated these vices as virtues. And isn't that awful? It really is a redemptive uh, look at this topic, and it's one that's I think it's really practical because you're right. As I was reading it, I was thinking about things in my life where I can yeah. grow, um, and of course, you're pointing to the biblical corrective in each of these areas. Listeners, if you have benefited from this conversation, I do, or if it's just piqued your curiosity, I want to encourage you to head over to MoodyPublishers.com and grab a, a, a copy of John's book. Again, the title is dangerous virtues, how to follow Jesus when evil masquerades as good. It's just a fascinating and convicting, like we've been talking about, Reed. Uh, And it's also perfect if you want to work through a book as a a small group with your church or just some buddies that you have. It has uh, discussion questions at the end of each chapter that are just really good for sparking conversation. Uh, It's 20% off right now. Uh, Again, Dangerous Virtues, How to Follow Jesus When Evil Masquerades as Good. And you can grab a copy at moodypublishers.com and receive 20% discount today. Okay, John. Can I mention, mention too, that there's also, if they go to my website, johnkessler.com, there are some resources for small groups posted there. There's a set of videos, one video for each chapter. And there's also a, a, a set a group of, a set of uh, group discussion questions the, that are more expansive than the ones in the book that they could use. It'd be a good resource for a small group if they wanted to use that. So perfect. Thank you for mentioning that. And let me spell your last name for people who are unfamiliar with it. Uh, it's K O E S S L E R. So yeah, visit John's website and get those resources. Uh, John, as I mentioned at the outset, um, uh, we have a segment uh, in this podcast called The Writing Life. Uh, And you've been really prolific. I didn't even mention all the books that you've written uh, at the beginning here, but you have authored a lot of books as well as articles. You've done blogging uh, and you've done the majority of that while uh, navigating a demanding career as a professor and before that as a pastor. Um, I think a lot of people have this uh, vision of writers sitting in a lake cabin somewhere, sipping coffee and <laughs> tapping out uh, their yeah. masterpiece. Uh, I wish that's how it were. Um, but usually it, it happens in this kind of swirl of family obligations and a demanding career and other kinds of responsibilities. Over the years, can you describe how you've carved out the time to be a writer and then a little bit about what your writing process looks like? Well, I. 
I did two basic things. One is I assigned space in my schedule to it. So I, I would have dedicated time to write. And often it would be at, have to be at night, you know, because I work during the day and then I would come home and play with the kids. And then after the kids would go to bed. So it, it did mean that often when I was writing, it wasn't what, it might've been a time when I might have felt tired. So I would have to give myself an incentive to actually sit down and write because that, that was my myth when I wanted to be a writer ever since I was a kid. And I, I thought it was like this life of inspiration and, you know, <laughs> creative energy. And, and that actually turns out it's mostly just work, you know, and you, <laughs> the way that you write is you sit down and you start writing. So I would have to say to myself, okay, you know, you can write from, from say seven to eight o'clock, or I'm going to give you the, the, the time you set aside is from seven to eight o'clock, but I'm really tired. I'd really actually just rather watch TV. So just go up, go into your space, your dedicated space, which was a, a study for me. Go into your study and give it 10 minutes. Just write for 10 minutes. And if, and if the energy doesn't kick in for you, then come on back out and watch TV. And most, <laughs> most of the time, and that, and that was helpful to me because, you know, 10, minute, 10 minutes I could manage. So I would start writing and, you know, before you know it, half hour go by, hour go by, sometimes two hours would go by. You know, it becomes, the, the, for me, the energy comes once I start doing the work. So that was part of it. Then the other, the other thing I used to do is I used to give myself incentives to write because I, because I wanted to write. In fact, my problem was there were other things that I really had to do when I would really rather <laughs> write. So, so I would sometimes use writing as the bait to get me to do the things I was supposed to do. Huh. <laughs> speaking, speaking of sloth. So I would say, <laughs> you know, all right, if you, you know, if you work until, uh, you know, three o'clock, you can write from three to four. <laughs> so, so I, I would do both of those things. Sometimes the incentive would be, you know, just this is, I know this is kind of work and it's tedious. Just do it for 10 minutes. And then if you don't like it, you can stop. And on other, on other occasions it was, I re, because you, I know you really want to get to this, but you actually do need to write your sermon first. So <laughs> if you, you know, so if you do this, you can, you know, uh, you can have this space here where you've earned the space where you can do the writing. I did consider writing part of my ministry, which was helpful. I didn't consider it um, a hobby. I felt it was part of the way that God had, it was the voice he had given me, you know, part of my gifting. And so I did see it as an extension of my ministry to the church. And then when I was a professor at Moody, I saw it as an extension of my teaching ministry. And um, so, but mostly, you know, the many, many people who have written about the task of being a writer, they all say the same thing, that it really is just a matter of sitting down and, and writing. Now, in terms of process, you know, people are, people are different. Some people like to plan everything out before they start writing. And, you know, so they'll do a detailed outline and in some sense, you know, they'll have the book written uh, before they actually start putting words on computer or paper, or however they do it. I'm not one of those writers. 
I process it while I'm writing it. So generally, I'll have a theme that I'm working off of and and like the nuts and bolts of like moment by moment or day by day writing, you know, I, if I have, I have to start with a sentence or I start with a paragraph. Mm. And once I start with the first paragraph, then I just, what is it I need to say next? What is it I need to say next? What is it I need to say next? And as that begins to unfold, um, that is also usually what directs my research. So I develop the thought and then I, you know, and then maybe I need to look into it a little more before I develop the next thought. It's probably not the most efficient way to write. I think there are other people who have a more efficient process. And this is one of the things I would say about writing is that it's very personal in that way mm-hmm. that, you know, every, just as every writer has to find their own voice, every writer has to find their own method. And I think finding your method is a lot like finding your voice, that most writers, when they're beginning, they have people they look up to that they imitate until they, like painters do the same thing, until they then begin to uh, find the voice that's unique to them. I think method is the same way, that you hear about how others write and you try something what works for that person may not work for you, but you maybe you modify it. And before you know it, you know, you have your own pattern that, that works in your situation. And, and you really do have to balance your obligations. That is, you know, if you have a family that, that you have to pay attention to that you love, you know, it's not work. It's not like, you know, I hate, I hate the way some guys talk about it. It's like, Oh yes, I, you know, I have this time dedicated to my wife. It's like, (laughs) you know, I mean, it's like they, like, like she's your job. Yeah. I gotta go be with my wife. You know, I'm sure their wives love that by the way. No, Well, I don't know. I mean, I I, I, I wanted you in at two o'clock for a half an hour meeting. Yeah, (laughs) I know. That's exact. I mean, literally there are, I've seen some leaders who that's literally what they do, which maybe they just have to, maybe they just have to do that because they're so busy and you know, they're, they're hedging, they're putting a hedge around the time, but but sometimes it's, it feels like a disposition. Anyways, you do, you, you have responsibilities (laughs) that um that you have to take care of and you know that's okay that's called being an adult but (laughs) you know so but you have to structure it you have to structure your life around that i guess is what i'm saying trying to say yeah no that and that's i'm the same as you in the sense that i'm not one of those people that goes and like outlines the entire manuscript and knows exactly where i'm going to go. And if I did that, I just find it paralyzing. I have to just plow into it and see what happens. And yes, you're right. That's not the most efficient way probably. Uh, and you, you may take some, uh, you know, you might write a chapter that ends up being useless that way, but I remember one of my, go ahead. ahead. I I, I, I do think that, I do think that, um, you know, there are some modes of writing where you kind of need to do that. Like I've always wanted to write fiction, but I can't, like I just I'm really intimidated by it, and I can't figure out a good storyline. My son Drew, whom you have met, yes, he he has this wonderful idea for a science fiction novel that he has been thinking about for years. I mean, I mean, maybe even uh, well, at least ten years. 
And he's got this, you know, all this stuff, like he's been giving it serious thought, but he can't sit down and write it, (laughs) you know, and I can't think it out. (laughs) So anyways, it's just, it's personal. Anyways, what were you going to say? Oh yeah, no, I just, um, it reminded me when you were talking about that of, of, uh, the way, uh, uh, one of my professors in, uh, my undergrad put it, he said, when it comes to writing, there are forest people and there are tree people. And mm-hmm. the forest people are the ones who see the entire project and figure it out and then start. And then there's the tree people who have to just plant one tree at a time until that's they right. create a whole forest, right? And that's I realized exactly true. That, that's me, the latter group. Unfortunately, I, yeah. I wish I was a forest person. <laughs> no, I think, I mean, that's it. I, yeah, I don't, and that's maybe if, you know, somebody who's listening is a writer, you know, you have to come to terms with the way you've been designed by God to function creatively and not try to be somebody else. And I do think when you're starting out as a writer and this, and some people, you know, they go to these writing conferences and all these successful writers tell you how to do it. And then you go home. It's kind of, I shouldn't say it's just, it's kind of like the Bill Gothard seminar. You know, it's like it never, you know, it really looks good on paper, but it never worked for me. <laughs> so, you know, that I, that I think that that's, I think that's just part of the struggle of it that you, you know, you develop these techniques and you begin to work on your ideas. And eventually, I mean, it took me, it took me years and, and several books to realize that it wasn't a fluke, you know, that I, I, every book that I wrote, I I wrote the first article, uh, the first article I ever wrote that got published, I had written several before that, that got rejected, but the first article that got published, I thought, oh, you know, oh, well, great, it works. And then I, and then immediately this sense of panic, like, oh, I don't think I could ever do that again. (laughs) You know, and then another article and then another article. And then I wrote a book and it's like, oh, great. But I don't think I could ever do that. And every book that I write, I'm, when I'm done with it, I'm pretty convinced that's the last book I'll ever write. Like I'm never going to, I'm never going to have another thought again, you know, because I spent it all on this one. Or I thought like it's the whole thing is just like an accident you know, somebody's going to figure this out that I'm some kind of an imposter. (laughs) I I just think there are a lot of writers out there who, who, you know, who wrestle with that, that there's this continual sense of, um, I don't know what it is. You know, it's, it's an anxiety you feel that you're, you're not going to be able to, you're not going to be able to pull it off. And, Again, it took me a long time. It took me a long time to just settle down with that and not worry about it. And also took me a long time to realize that the the pleasure and the joy of it comes in the writing. Hmm. Because I think when I started, I wanted to be published, you know, which is a very different thing. And of course, the anxiety of a writer is I can write this thing, but that doesn't mean anybody's going to want to publish it. Hmm. So that so that I, and it took, I, it's not something that came quickly. It honestly took decades for me to come to the place where I could accept that the joy was in the writing, the experience of putting these thoughts into words and organizing them. And then if somebody was interested in publishing, then great. But that really I had to accept the the act of writing for what it was. And of course, it's a lot easier today in that, um, 
if you can't find somebody who's interested in your work, you can you can self-publish or you can you know you can uh, uh, you can do a blog. Anybody can do a blog. You know, it's a great context for getting writers to to create this experimental space to practice to work on their craft and to develop their ideas and maybe so get a true. reader or two. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Exactly. No, you're absolutely (laughs) correct. That's what I tell writers all the time, aspiring people that are just starting out. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You don't need to write a book right off the bat. I mean, let's, let's walk before you walk or crawl before you walk and walk before you crawl you. And you're absolutely correct in the sense that the, the, the gatekeepers are gone. You can go directly to readers now uh, and, and get an audience. John, that is such great advice. Thank you. I, I was writing things down here as you as you talked. Uh, this one is going to be absolute gold for me. Just write for 10 minutes, yeah. honestly, because I think like I'll block out three hours on a Saturday afternoon. Okay, I got to do this. And it's so daunting. I just dread it. So three hours is yeah. looming, right? But the truth is, if you just start often, you'll do the two or three hours, right? I was talking to my, I was uh, actually emailing a colleague of mine who, I don't know, you probably know Dr. De Rose, Rosalie De Rose, who's wonderful. I know. Yeah. She's a wonderful writer. And, um, and I've been trying, you know, I've been urging her for years to write a memoir because she's had such an interesting life, interesting background. And, but, but she was, you know, one of the things that she was wrestling with is like, she'd set herself to write something and she was talking about how she was going to, you know, I, I have to get to this. And, uh, what I realized is that what we often do is we turn it into work. And so I just said, look, huh. you know, don't turn it into a job. You know, you already have a job because the minute it becomes, and I'm not saying there isn't work involved, but the minute you look at it primarily as a task, it leeches all of the pleasure out of it. <laughs> right. You know, and so, so there, on the one hand, I have to reconcile the fact that Reconcile with the fact that it is work that, <clears throat> excuse me, that it is work that a lot of, a lot of the task of writing is just the tedium of, you know, the, the process of putting your thoughts together and putting them down. But it, ha- it has to be something more than that. It can't just mm-hmm. be a work to you or you won't really do it because you know, who wants that life? Nobody does. Right. You got, you got to keep the joy in it. That's for sure. John, thank you so much for this discussion. I I thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to being back in the Chicago area when this whole uh, pandemic is over sometime in 2030, Uh, (laughs) hopefully before then, uh, and grabbing coffee with you again. Yeah, except Uh, I I don't live in Chicago anymore. I live in Michigan. So you're going to have to come up to Ludington, Michigan. (laughs) No, you're going to have to come to Chicago, man. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. I'll come to Portland where my kids are. We can meet there. (laughs) We can meet here. We can get some real coffee in Portland. So that's that's perfect. (laughs) (laughs) And listeners, I want to encourage you again to check out John's book, Dangerous Virtues, How to Follow Jesus When Evil Masquerades as Good. It's a powerful book. It's essential reading, uh, I believe, for following Jesus in our particular uh, cultural moment right now. Um, and we didn't touch on all the vices uh, uh, that he he does in the book, um, but they're in there and they're incredibly helpful, not only for understanding what's going on out there in the culture, but also what's happening in your own heart. Um, because the problem, let's face it, isn't just out there. It's inside all of us and we all need help. Uh, in in becoming more like Jesus. That's the ultimate goal. If you enjoyed this conversation too, I want to encourage you to leave us a rating 
or a review on Apple or Google Podcasts. Uh, thanks for joining us again. Thanks for listening. And until next time, keep reading. <laughs>